0: We're in the last chapter of Ecclesiastes 12. I'm going to summarize the whole book so we can get up to speed with where we're at here at the end. Um, Solomon is the writer of this book. He calls himself the preacher, the teacher, but tradition, and most Bible scholars believe Solomon's clearly the writer of this book. Um, He's probably the only person that's ever lived that had the time and the wealth and the resources and the peace and prosperity to try every worldview that this life has to offer. And God gave him this gift of peace and prosperity as a king and gave him wisdom. And Solomon, in one sense, kind of blew it. In his whole life, he took a thousand wives. He was opulent, and materialist with his wealth. He kind of wasted a lot of these opportunities. And as he gets older, he sits down to write and he just says, I got to tell people what I've learned in my life, the wisdom I've gained, plus the wisdom God's given to me. there's only one way to live, and I haven't lived that way my whole life. And you get that tone throughout Ecclesiastes, but at the same token, Solomon tried it all. He went there. He did the opulent parties, and he did everything. So in chapter one, he writes about living for nature, and we, we have communities of people that do that. They love to go and be with trees and talk to plants and enjoy nature and, 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 and do that, and, and he tried that. He was a master gardener that he cited in Second Kings. In chapter 1, he talks about nature. He talks about intellect. We have people like me that wasted 20 years of our life studying books. Um, not that books are bad, but I worshipped them, and, it, and, it, and I'd spend a lot of my time studying things that just don't matter. And then I study the Word of God, and I'm like, wow, there really isn't a better book out there. So And I still enjoy to read, by the way. So kids, that's not an excuse to not study in school, learn your stuff. Chapter 2, he talks about living for pleasure. He lived for alcohol and parties and living it up, and he spent time doing that, and it came with a lot of regret and futility. Chapter 2, he talks about living for hard work. We know people like that. They're workaholics. They live for the job. Uh, Solomon says at the end of that, you're just going to get tired. Um, Chapter 3 talks about fatalism. Well, then nothing matters, so who cares? The problem he comes to in chapter three is, but I still have this conscience that just won't let me live that way. I feel like something does matter and I'm supposed to live for that. Chapter four, he lives for himself. Well, if I'm just going to, if I got to live for something, it's going to be for me. That doesn't do much. And then he lives for sloth, just to be lazy. That ends up in hunger and pain. Chapter four, he goes for friends and popularity. Of course, he was a king, so if he wanted friends, there were plenty of friends to be had doesn't go with you when you die, and he found that most of his friends just wanted money from him and that people fail us. No matter how much we like each other, people are going to fail you. Chapter 5, he lives for religion. And we have a lot of people in the church that sometimes do that. We just live to be holy. And if we can feel holy about ourselves, somehow our life has more meaning than it did before. And Solomon just says it's foolish and it's even dangerous because you're toying with God when you do that. Chapter 5 and 6 both talk about wealth again, just getting as rich as you can doesn't end with anything. In fact, Solomon points out the more money you get, the more people you have to hire, the more you have to spend your time dealing with those people you hired. (laughs) So it's this loop of just endless work. Chapter 7 and 8, okay, so don't work for opulent wealth, just live for the good life. A home in the suburbs, if that's the good life, maybe a little ranch or something like that, just live simply. Don't get too excited. Don't get too too enamored with anything. Just live this kind of lukewarm life. Solomon says the problem with that is being dull is less valuable than having joy. And joy implies that you live for something. So chapter 9, well, we all die. And you just go for stoicism. And those people are just kind of set their teeth and are going to just be hard until the end. And the problem with that idea is being hard leaves you lonely. And Solomon says, but hope is better than just living for death. How many more ways can we think of to live? Solomon in chapter 10 goes into just living with the unwise. If you want to live in wisdom, you're going to find that there's foolish people everywhere you go. And you can curse them if you want, and there's foolish people above you on the pay scale and below you on the pay scale. And you can curse them, but he says that forgiveness is better than cursing. So through this logical sequence of, really, he doesn't have the New Testament, he doesn't have the example of Jesus... But he's coming through this all through this logical process that hope is better than death. Forgiveness is better than cursing. Joy is better than dullness. And in chapter 11, he just says you've got to embrace being healthy and being productive. And when you're young and you can move and you can do things, do things. Embrace life. Don't let it go, but do it within the realm that God's laid out for holiness. So you've got an opportunity to go to Italy. You say, yes, I'm going to Italy and I'm going to help over there. You live for that. You get an opportunity to go to Jerusalem or you go to Israel with one of the teams that's going over there and you get to talk about the gospel. You say yes, you jump at it. And if you're able and young, and young for Solomon, I think he's writing when he's 80, 90-ish right now, young for him is like anything under 70, right? If you can still get out of bed and go do things, then you're not in chapter 12 yet. And if you (laughs) have right ahead in chapter 12, we're going to see a picture of old age that only Solomon could write. So when you can be productive, be productive. Live life to its fullest um, and do that. And as we get to 12, we're going to get to two parts of chapter 12. One is this picture of old age and what it's like when we're old. And my wife read this and she said it's kind of a depressing chapter to end on, Sean. And I don't think it was depressing at all. I think what he paints is this picture of if you're not here yet, then you should be here. And he comes to this grand conclusion to this entire sequence of logic. That was a long intro, yes? Yes. But I thought it was good. We're ending the book. So let's go back through the whole thing and come through it. So here's the finest conclusion. One other thought as we get into chapter 12. I think it's the clearest picture of how to live your life in the whole Old Testament. In the New Testament, we get plenty, and I'll come back to those here as we get to the end. But Solomon lays out in just a couple verses at the end of the chapter, here's how you live life. This is what life's all about. And he comes to that conclusion not in a flippant way. He's not being preachy about it. He's laid out his logic and shared it with us and said, this is how we need to live, people. This is it. So you want that? There it is. So let's start in. Uh, I'll stop talking I'll start reading here. Remember now your creator in the days of your youth before the difficult days come. And the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. While the sun and light, the moon and stars are not darkened and the clouds do not return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men bow down, when the grinders cease because they're few and those that look through the windows grow down. So we dig into this piece. Uh, the first word, remember, in the Hebrew is a word called zakar. Um, what's interesting here is when we think of remember in our language, we think of just rem- having memories, like looking back and remembering But this was a bigger word, and throughout the Bible it gets used in slightly different ways. It is to be mindful, to record, to remember what we mean, but it's also to think upon things. Similar to set your mind on these things. So when you get, um, in your youth, you're supposed to contemplate and think about it. I also think it says remember your creator, and, and, and there's an idea here that when we remember our creator, we remember that we are made, we are less than the being above us. This is the first time Solomon gets there. Most of this book he says, under the sun this, and under the sun that. But he kind of concludes this last chapter and starts with remember your creator. This is not under the sun. This is something well beyond the sun. He says to do it in your youth. And I was thinking to remember now your creator in the days of your youth before the difficult days to come. And I was stunned with, and I had this awesome chance to go um, hang out with a group of people this last week. Thank you for that. And and after we got done kind of doing some music and hanging out with them, there was a few of them that loved the Lord. And there was this freshness to how they loved the Lord. There was a marvel about what they had. And as I was preparing this sermon and doing that, I'm like, that's what Solomon's talking about. When you think of your Creator, it should bring some joy to your heart. And I also think of children. If you've been around kids, they're amazed by everything they see, right? And they look at, so they'll take a clover off. I remember when we took Grant to try to do sports. You all know Grant's into music, right? When, we, when he was a baby, we didn't know that. So growing up, we threw him into soccer league, right? So there he is, five years old in soccer league, and the coach is yelling at him. And I'm, I'll admit, I was one of those parents that kind of talked to people a little bit. So I was a little tuned out, and I could hear the coach going, Grant, Grant, get up. And I look out on the field. Grant, the defenseman, is sitting in the grass picking clovers and looking. And he can't understand why everybody's mad at him as the ball goes shooting past him into the thing. But there's this wonder that God made everything. I thought, wouldn't it be cool just to have a Selah tonight and just think, breathe in air. God made that. It doesn't stink too bad. (laughs) He made those plants. He made that sunlight when it hits your skin, and he gave us that feeling. He made this beautiful, complex world where we can look at things at the microbiological level, or we can get telescopes and look into space, and all we see is endless complexity. And he gave us this wonderful place. Remember now your creator. Think upon, meditate on your creator in the days of your youth. What should we spend our time on? Thinking about who God is. Isn't he great? And I know sometimes with people that don't want to hear about God that I bug them with that. Like I'm an annoying, joyful Christian because I'll be like, isn't God good? And they're like, don't you have enough God in your life? And the answer is no. God's eternal. I'd have even more if I knew how to do it. Dave Gusick says, Solomon saw clearly that there was a place in our younger years, though not only in younger years, in the legitimate pleasures and satisfactions of life. If the meaning of life was not found in the pursuit of pleasure, Ecclesiastes 2, it's also not found in aestheticism and self-denial for its own sake, which was kind of chapter 4. We have to give good account to God for what we did. In other words, have fun. And we should enjoy that. There's a place in our youth for enjoying things. And our youth is everybody in this room, right? We're not, we'll keep reading. We'll, we'll define what old age is to Solomon here in a second. And then the difficult days, before the difficult days come. What are the difficult days? We're going to get this beautiful description of old age. Difficult is when it's hard to move. It's hard to talk. It's hard to hear. And it's hard to see our facilities start to disappear. My theory on old age, before we get into it, is that it's this natural God-given way under the curse of Adam and Eve for us to remember that we're going to get new bodies in heaven. Like the creakier this body gets, the more I want my heavenly body, right? Where those cells regenerate. Do you know every cell in your body replaces itself every 30 days? So Every 30 days, physically, you're actually a new human being than you were 30 days ago. I think that's kind of stunning. The only exception would be your bones. But even bone marrow replaces bone cells on a regular basis. Why do our bodies not regenerate the way they should? Because we're meant to die at a certain amount of time. And that's where we're going to go. The other thing as we talk about old age and death here, I'm not trying to be flippant about old age and death, but we're going to come to this conclusion with Solomon. And I'm trying to reflect Solomon's wisdom here a little bit. He's not so worried about death. It's not the end of everything. From God's perspective, death is just a transfer journey. It's just a bus ride to him. In fact, in the wink of an eye, we'll be with God. And to him, that's not such a horrible thing. To us, it's a bit uncertain and a bit worrisome, but it's not to Solomon and it's not to the Bible. So verse two, when the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are not darkened and the clouds do not return after the rain, Solomon's starting to Give beautiful images of what is not so beautiful to us. It's a picture of old age. Obviously, the sun and the light don't change their thermometer settings, right? It's our eyesight that starts to dim, right? And when the clouds come over, you ever notice when the clouds come and go the last few days, it gets super bright, and then that cloud comes in and everything just gets a little grayer? That's Solomon's image. As we get older, the clouds start to come in. The sun and light and the moon and stars start to darken. Another way to interpret that is that time seems to speed up. And, and I saw that when I was looking at in interpretations too. I kind of just like the image that the eyesight starts to go because of what's about to come next. The next verse, and the strong men bow down, obviously. Well, I'm feeling this in my 40s. I used to be, I could feel my strength in my 20s. And if people wanted to wrestle, I was like, yes, let's see who has more muscles. And we could do those things, and we'd do feats of strength to impress the young ladies. But then something happens in your 30s and your 40s and you're not working out as much. There might be some really healthy people in the room, but all of a sudden you're like, when those young men want to wrestle, I might not want to do that anymore because <laughs> they, will, they will not be impressed with exactly how weak I am. I still might look like I'm strong, but I have no strength left in me. But there's a time in my life when the bowing down starts to happen, and we've seen this, right? The back starts to hunch, And people start to get smaller. You actually lose height. If you talk to Bing about his health, he'll tell you how he's lost an inch. (laughs) And you're laughing because he's told you that already, right? Uh, But we do. We get older. We start to bow down. We start to get smaller. When the grinders cease because they're few, they didn't have as good a dentistry as we do. And those that look through the windows grow dim. Our eyes start to fade. But not just they start to fade. Medically, we start to see less of the color spectrum. Colors aren't as bright and vibrant as we get older as they were. I'm noticing it when I read. If I get copied music sheets, I can't quite read the script when it's that lighter gray. I used to be. I used to not be a problem for me, but now I gotta squint a little bit more. I just went to the optometrist about two two and a half weeks ago, and they told me I need bifocals. I said I'm just gonna do this, and they said you can do that as long as you want. When you get sick of it, you can come to us. But i, I take my glasses off. You people are all blurry. And that happens to most of us. Our eyes aren't as strong as they were when they were younger. And they're going to keep getting worse because we're on our way to death. Verse 4, When the doors are shut in the streets and the sound of grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of the bird and all the daughters of music are brought low. There's poetry going on here. We know there's poetry because the word grinders here is not the same as the word grinders in the last verse. They're two different, slightly different words. In the verse before, the grinders cease because they're few is talkon, and it's used 17, seven times throughout the Bible. It has to do with teeth, but it also implies talking, yeah. right? So when the grinders cease because they're few, could be teeth or talking, and if they're few, they're probably referring to teeth. But in the next one, they say the sound of grinding is low, and he uses the feminine version of the word, and, um, and he talks about volume, so he's probably talking about the sound of women talking. He had a 1,000 wives. So as he got older, I just, it cracked me up. I thought of this image and I thought, if you had a 1,000 wives and you could really only spend time with a few at a time, or I don't know how they do it in those situations, um, Solomon probably had a lot of people that wanted his ear. And that sound just started getting more and more muddy. And hearing things got to be harder and harder. So it's like when you shut your doors and the sound of the street goes away and then you open the door and you can hear that street really clearly. So there go your ears. The daughters of music are brought low. Um, my grandfather used to joke that there's two things you shouldn't let old people do. And he was an old person when he said this. He said you shouldn't let them drive after a certain point, and you shouldn't let them sing in church anymore. <laughs> and I was like, Grandpa, that's so bad. And you, you don't have a bad voice. And he goes, yeah, but I'm not a soloist anymore. Your vocal cords start to weaken, and you start to lose that voice. They're also afraid of heights <laughs> and terrors in the way when the almond tree blossoms, the grasshoppers a burden and desire fails, for man goes to his eternal home and mourners go about in the streets. We're all going to go. They're afraid of heights. I thought of this. My grandma, when she was getting older, was still living on her own up in North Dakota, and we get this phone call. It's from my aunt. Oh, grandma's had an incident is how it was described. So as a kid, I naturally was like, well, what was the incident? And as a college-age kid, I had to know. What was the incident? Well, she had a, she kind of fell. What does it mean to kind of fall? Is she okay? Was she hurt? No. The neighbor lady came and checked in on her every day. And one day she came and she's like, Virgie, Virgie, where are you? I'm up here. She yells because her, you know, her voice isn't what it used to be. And she comes up and she finds her in the bedroom. <laughs> and she sees two legs just sticking up out of a laundry basket. <laughs> And she kind of stands in the doorway and she goes, Virgie? And and my grandma says, It seems I've got myself into quite a pickle. (laughs) She's afraid of heights. There's a point where the falling starts to happen, and those falls can be really harmful. They can be really hurtful. You can break a hip, they can really set you back. So as you get older, you get a little more scared. I've noticed myself when it's icy out, I'm a lot more. I used to slide on that ice, and now I don't. Um, one too many hits on the elbow and you start doing it. When the almond tree blossoms, we don't have a lot of almond trees around here, so I looked that up. When they blossom, they turn white as a sheet. So they uh, go white, and he's obviously talking about, you know, when we get older, our hair goes white. The grasshopper is a burden. Obviously, even bending over to do your gardening or picking it up gets to be kind of a chore. It's a whole task. You look at the grasshopper for 15 minutes before you decide what you're going to do with it. Um, and desire fails and I there's a point in our lives where we stop desiring the 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 finer points of the opposite gender and that starts to happen for we go to our eternal home and mourners go about in the streets there's psychological effects in verse five we talk about fear, terror, um, burdens, desires we talk about the psychological effects we're in verses three and uh, or two through four he talks about more of the physical effects. I worked at an uh, assisted living home when I was in my 20s as a maintenance guy for a long time. I loved that job. It's one of my favorite jobs ever because on my break I could go down to the, uh, the social room where they would hang out, and there were all these, always this group of old guys playing um, cribbage or gin rummy, one of the, depending on what mood they were in that day. And they always brought me over because they just liked me, and they, sometimes they needed a fourth because that other guy didn't get out of bed today. So there was the occasions where i get to sit, and these guys would just sit and tell stories. They barely played cards. like they, they might lay a card every minute, but they would just sit and tell stories about their youth and do that sort of thing. And I just remember thinking, man, when I get to be an old man and I can barely move anymore, I'd love to be one of those people. And I would joke with them and just tell them how much I appreciate them, and they would just laugh, and they'd say, you know, Sean, 80% of the people in this place, they don't understand life at all. Life is about all of these good things and they were believers they were good guys and i remember coming up with this phrase and it came from one of those old guys it's scarred up man with blurry marine tattoos all over his arms he said there are old gems and there's dead wood and when you grow up you just want to be an old gem both of them are old but one's one's beautiful and one is just worthless and that was the thing and he and he was right as i worked in that nursing home and i you know i'd go into their places to hang a picture for them or fix their drains, that was the worst part about the job. And there were. There were people that were just sweet, nice, beautiful people. And then there were these just okay. harsh, mean, nasty, bitter, grumpy people, and you think, wow, how did you wither up into that? You know, and it was just one of those things. We're all gonna go. So verse six, remember your creator, and he's coming back. So we're in a new second section. He's using poetic style to bring us back to this point. Remember your creator before the silver cord is loosed or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher shattered at the fountain, or the wheel of the, is broken at the well. I went through and I found, you know, Jay Vernon McGree goes through each of these, and he says they're a different part of the body, and, and, you know, head, heart, lungs, and all that. I just think Solomon's being poetic. I think he's taking things that are really valuable, and everything breaks. Everything rusts. Everything decays. All right, maybe this is a little depressing. But there's this image, and so he says, remember the Creator in the days of your youth, Remember your creator before you die. Remember your creator throughout your life, all the way through. Verse 7, Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Obviously with dust, he's making a reference to Genesis. Genesis 2.7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. God made us. God's going to take us away from dust to dust. That's how it's going to go. I also like that he says, then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and, notice this is a conjunctive sentence, and the spirit will return to the God who gave it. Our body and our spirit are not the same thing. My spirit isn't older. My body is. Look at what Solomon's doing here. I think this is really encouraging. As my body gets creaky and old and tired and it wins me to go up a flight of stairs, my spirit is alive like it never has been. It's on fire. And the more I'm in the Word, the more I feel it. The the days that I skip being in the Word are dull days. And they're forgettable, the days. The days that I'm in the Word, it gives me this lens for every person I encounter, every experience I have, and all I can see is the life of God in the people around me. Thank you for that, church. Um, But it's why we need to hang out with each other, I think, is that our spirits are fed by one another in a way that's amazing. In community of the saints, in the study of the Word, in worship and in prayer, our spirits are fed and they're alive, and they're going to go be with God when our body's going to go to the dirt. verse 8. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Vanity is loving ourselves. They used to make furniture pieces. They don't really make these anymore, do they? Vanities? Now we call vanities those mirrors in our bathroom that we look at. That can be called a vanity. But there used to be this thing they made like in the 70s. It was like this desk with drawers on either side and it was like My mom had one of these. It was Mom's Vanity. And I wasn't supposed to touch it or go into it or play with the creams and stuff like that, even though sometimes they were the perfect color for my crayon drawings. The lipstick was not mine to get after. And there was this giant mirror that I remember when I saw Snow White and they had that big oval mirror in Snow White. I was like, oh, my mom has one of those, only there's an evil demon in the mirror. Um, But with my mom, it was this vanity. But the idea is you sit down and you focus on yourself. You're vain. Remember that Solomon has used vanity throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. And he keeps coming back to this mantra, this refrain. It's all vanity. It's all thinking about ourselves. It's all looking at ourselves. If you could flip to James, go to the right. If you get to the Book of Mormon, you've gone too far. (laughs) I like that one. James one, gone way too far. Uh, John James one, and verse twenty two. James says, "Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if you're a hearer of the word and you're not a doer, you're like a man observing his natural face in a vanity, in a mirror." For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. And Solomon says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. I want to stop on this thought a little bit, because he keeps coming back to this thought. We tend to look at ourselves a lot, and we can't stop. I'm saying we, I should just say me. I can't stop doing it. I wake up in the morning and I think and I pray and I say, Lord, help me to have a holy day today. Help me to think of others all day today. I've never been successful in that. Lord's helped me grow in that. And I'm thinking now in terms of percentage of day. Let me just grow that percentage where my heart, my concern is for other people and for the Lord God Almighty. I'm maybe at 5%, and I'm feeling pretty good about that, right? Most of my day, I'm still thinking about myself, and I just, it's vanity. It's just that fleshy part that's hard for us to shake. We worry about our own concerns. We worry about where the money's going to come from. We're worried about if so-and-so likes us or not. We're worried about our positions at work. We're worried about if I need to worry about that grasshopper on the driveway or not. Those kinds of things. But when we do that, it's, and James sets it up as it's, the contrast is, we're not doing the word when we're thinking about ourselves. If you're looking in a mirror, you're not out talking to people, looking at others. So if this is the sum total of man's wisdom is that everything we do in our own wisdom is ultimately vanity, studying books, loving nature, working hard, not working at all, doing this, doing that, doing the other, it's all vanity. It's all just thinking about ourselves and where we fit in things. You can even do religion and do things for other people, but if you're doing it to elevate yourself, it's just vanity too. The only thing that matters is that we can do good with God's Spirit in us. The only moments of my day when I'm not sinning, when I'm not in vanity, is when I'm studying the Word, when I'm singing worship, when I'm praying, when I'm in fellowship with other people, desperately asking, what's God teaching you? Those are the moments of my day. I'm not in sin, and I cherish those. I want more of those because I get life. I love how James puts it, you observe yourself for a long time, and you go away, and you forget about yourself. I don't remember what I did yesterday for those 90% of my minutes, but I do remember talking to so-and-so about what God was doing in their life. I do remember this other believer that I met out of nowhere. And those are the people I want to spend my time with because for some reason that stuff sticks with me. If my body and my soul are different and my body's going to go to the grave someday, I want to invest in this soul as much as I can with the time that I have with as much percentage of my day as I can because everything else is vanity. Go to 1 Corinthians I think this is why Paul didn't go and make big philosophical arguments with the Greeks. And he makes a point of that. He was trained to do that. He was trained under one of the best teachers in the in the first century. He was highly regarded as a scholar. And then he found Jesus and he said all that stuff is worthless. In fact, he uses the word that kind of means crap, right? He says all that stuff, all that training, all I needed to know was that Jesus is risen from the dead. God is real. And God came into history and changed all of it. That's all I need to know and all I need to teach. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, And I, brethren, I came to you, not with excellency of speech or wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. He didn't come pompous. He didn't try to convince us how intelligent he was or how smart he was. Verse 2, For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. What do I think of this? I don't know. I just know Jesus rose from the dead. That's all I need to know. It's just that easy. You ever talk to somebody who's not a believer and they want to argue with you about stuff? right? We had this, right, Billy? They want to talk about Leviticus and pigskins and football and all that, and I was just kind of sitting quietly there. And I'm just thinking to myself, if you still need to argue about it, you're not at that point in your life where you really need God. So figure it out. Go do your vanity as long as you can because you're just not at that point where you want to talk about When you're talking about with somebody who wants God, You're not arguing with them. You're just showing them the path. Here it is. I was with you in weakness and in fear and trembling. And I got to tell you, every time I teach God's word, I feel that sense of weakness, fear, and trembling. I don't know how to teach the Bible. I just love it. And I want to just not be so fearful that I don't teach it. You know what I'm talking about? You know, And you're just there, I don't know, I'm not fearing and trembling. This is different. When I was a young man, I would want to get into arguments with people. And arguments don't win people to Christ. Nobody came to Christ because they lost an argument. They come to Christ because somebody loved them and looked past all that other stuff. I'm glad somebody loved me that way and looked past my feelings. Verse 4, my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. Because man's wisdom is vanity. It's just looking in a mirror. But in demonstration of the Spirit and in power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but the power of God. I'm going to go back to James again. James 4 says, Come now you who say today or tomorrow will go to such and such a city. I noticed that when I came here. A lot of you say, God willing. I'll see you Friday, God willing. And I was like, oh, this is where that came from. It makes sense. It's biblical. Come now you who say today or tomorrow will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, make a profit. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Verse 14, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then it vanishes away. Your life is nothing. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it's a sin. Vanity of vanity, says the preachers, all is vanity. I'll go back to Ecclesiastes. This is the conclusion of the book. He starts with the vanity thought. He ends with the vanity of thought. I think that's a beautiful set of bookends where he has thought through worldly wisdom and he's ending it. And that's where he does it. Verse 9 starts with, and moreover. It's almost like an epilogue. So in some ways, we've finished Ecclesiastes of right now. Worldly wisdom, in a nutshell, we've seen it. And moreover. So there's this conclusion he's about to make. And I know you're reading ahead, so I'll keep going. Because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. He's written a lot of proverbs. In Sunday school, you all know how many proverbs he's written? 31, 31 chapters worth of proverbs. If you go to 1 Kings four thirty-two says he spoke 3,000 Proverbs. His songs were 1,005. This guy wrote 1,005 songs. That's more than Chris Tomlin. (laughs) He spake of trees from the cedar tree that's in Lebanon, even the hyssop that springeth out of the well. He spake of beasts and fowls and creeping things and fishes. And there came of all people to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth which he has heard. We've never seen a person on earth since Solomon where everybody wants to hear what he has to say. Even Donald Trump, not, I, I hate to break it to you, but not everybody on this planet wants to know what Donald Trump thinks. But with Solomon, people came from countries all over the world. What does this guy know about hyssop trees? And they just soaked in this guy's wisdom. So he was still a teacher. Verse 10, the preacher sought to find acceptable words, and what was written was upright words of truth. Actually, well, actually, that comes from my academic background, in the Septuagint, when they translated the Hebrew Old Testament to a Greek Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, they added connecting words in this verse, a lot of them. So I'm looking at it on a screen where all those connect, all those Greek words that got added are kind of grayed out. It's like a red-letter Bible, only it's a gray Greek edition Bible. Hebrews literally, if you translate this verse in the words Solomon wrote them, in the English it might be better translated acceptable words and written upright words of truth the words themselves are written upright words of truth i kind of like that better than what is in what we have with all the connecting i know it's not a big deal but if you fi- seek to find acceptable words well everybody who writes tries to find acceptable words and what was written was upright words of truth but solomon said acceptable words and written upright words of truth and i think it means that he was trying to find acceptable words that were upright and that were truthful not that just happened to be upright, right? So he's, the point is, Solomon's being extremely careful. He's written this entire book for us, but he wants to summarize it in one teaching. So if we just listen to the teacher, and he's called himself the, the preacher again, if we just listen to what he's preaching to us, we don't need to read the rest of the book. We can just follow the wisdom. And the kids know I'm going to go on this. When the kids were growing up, I think I told you this before, we used to always do this thing where they would listen to mom who would tell them what to do, and if, they, if Dad was around, I'd tell them the wrong advice. So if the stove was hot and they were going near it, I'd say, go ahead and touch that stove. And they'd be like, Dad, it's hot. And I'd go, well, you, can, you don't know that it's hot? And I just wanted to bake into them this idea. I, I know this sounds like horrible parenting, but they were old enough to know that they shouldn't listen when Dad gets in that mode. But I wanted them to get to that point where when people tell you to do something just to try it, that that's a stupid argument right? I don't have to live the party lifestyle to know that it's not going to be fruitful in my life and then I'll have regret. I can just trust the, the preacher on that. I don't have to be the Home Depot mastermind and fix up my home so that it's perfect and then just realize everything's out of fashion and i got to start all over again. I don't have to be that person to realize that it's a pointless, futile cycle, right? I don't. And in the same way, my kids didn't have to go touch the stove and get burnt to realize that it burns, right? There are permanent effects to some of the mistakes we make in life. There are permanent effects to it, like touching a stove, right? Or when I was a kid, I learned it the hard way because nobody was that good of a parent for me. I was in Sunday school in church, and there's this outlet on the wall, and we had these metal scissors. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, I wonder what would happen. (laughs) And the young little Sean Brain started playing the game of what if, and I had images of things blowing up and everything else, and without any other thought, I took that little scissors, and I jammed it right in the thing. It blew the fuse in the middle of the service. Like, all the lights went out, went down, and the little scissors thing gave me a little shock, and it just popped me away. I didn't die or anything like that. Again, kids, don't listen to me. Don't go sticking scissors in outlets. I'll tell you what'll happen is, you could get really hurt by that. It was the dumbest thing in the world. Adults in the room know I'm telling you a dumb Sean story. But for my kids, I'd be like, you could try to put the scissors in there. Let's get you a rubber handle so you don't die doing it. But, you know, I can flip the fuse back and that sort of thing. And the kids would be like, no, Dad, we trust that that's not a good idea. I think that's what Solomon's saying to us here is, the preacher sought to find acceptable words. What was written was upright words of truth. They they were true words. Don't do the dumb things, you know. He's being careful to say it. He's being extremely specific. In 11, he kind of comes back to that point. The words of the wise are like goads, and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. A goad, if you don't know, if you do anything with farming and you have very, very large animals, you don't... I love watching reality shows where they give them animal tasks. Have you ever watched those things? And they'll grab the thing on the animal and try to pull it around. We can barely pull a goat if it doesn't want to go where we want it to go. The way you move an animal is you get behind it and you use a goad, a small stick or something pointy, and you just poke it in the butt. And that animal goes, boom. And you can move giant oxen or elephants with a simple goad. If it's it's the right word, it should be a word that sinks into our heart and give us a change, right? So if you really want to move something, let's move it with the right words. The words of scholars like well-driven nails, we know that metaphor a little better, right? But I think of nails when I'm doing it. Nails do two things really well, first of all, A well-driven nail, this is something you could try. Go ahead and try to put a nail in, and if you don't do it right, it bends over and it doesn't go deep, right? A well-driven nail goes right into that board. It connects two very large pieces of wood with one little piece of metal, and the fastening's pretty good. The other thing about a well-driven nail, and this is fun, I like to play with wood, A well-driven nail, on that last hit, you actually send it in with enough force that it goes past the surface of the wood just a little bit. And that wood kind of stretches back over the nail and seals it in. So a well-driven nail doesn't come out over time. It sinks in and it stays there, like the Word of God being written on our hearts, right? Another thought when it comes to this, the words of the wise, and I thought about the word wise there, Why is wise different than intelligent? I know a lot of intelligent people at the university, but some of them are really stupid. And it's because they don't listen to God. They don't listen to God's word, and they don't do what it says. So how can you be... What's the difference between intelligence and wisdom? How can really smart people who write entire books still be lost in life? Even suicidal, right? How can these people that have so much God-given talent and gifts be so disparate, dis, in despair in, in other parts of their life? I don't get it. And how can people who have nothing have wisdom? And the difference is if you're following the Lord. So listen to mom. Don't listen to dad in our household, right? Listen to the wise person. Take her advice. Don't listen to the foolish people in your life that say, just try it. You won't know until you try it. I don't need to know. I don't want to go there. I want to live a life for the Lord. Anyways... Just thought. Notice that he's not calling himself the shepherd here. Um, he's calling himself a preacher or a teacher. Um, I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, or wait, he is. He's not calling himself a shepherd. He's, he's saying, given by one shepherd. This is one of those things like when I found out in Genesis when the word for God is actually plural. I was like, Oh, cool. They saw that coming, the Trinity, Hope, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They use a plural word when they use and I thought it was really cool. I think this is one of those kind of things that Solomon could call himself a shepherd, but he doesn't. He says, Well-driven nails given by one shepherd. Doesn't say given by me, given by the preacher, given by the teacher. He abstracts that. And as he's writing, I have a hard time thinking he purposefully did that. I think he did it because that's truth. And the words of Jesus are the ones we're supposed to be listening to. The word is ra'ah, shepherd. It's translated as tender of the flock in terms of animals, but it's also associated with a person that you take a break with. That ra'ah word is a friend or a companion, the person that you will sit with, eat with, and talk with, and they care about you, a lifetime friend. He's attempting to sum up his whole life with a few well-targeted words, and we should be setting that up because he sets that up. This is all kind of build up to those few words. We should be at this point itching and saying, Sean, just tell us those words. What's the meaning of life? I'm going to hold you off just a little bit more. (laughs) Verse 12, And further, my son, be admonished by these. Of making many books there is no end, and in much study there is wearisome to the flesh. I've already kind of made that point tonight. But being admonished, why is it that we have such a hard time when people admonish us? Why is it when people say you're wrong, you should do it differently? And even if they're doing it with a biblical background, why is it that everything in our flesh rises up against that moment? When somebody says, you're doing something that's not aligned with the word of God. You're doing something that bothers me. You're doing something that hurts my feelings. Why is that admonishment so hard for us to accept? And why is that something we're there? Solomon takes time with this sentence to say, be admonished. It's okay to have people speak into your life that love you. And he uses the phrase, my son. He's assuming because it was mostly male priests in the Levitic priesthood, so he's writing that. I think we can abstract that to sons and daughters. But he's saying, my child, be admonished. Hear words of wisdom, right? Don't touch the stove if you don't have to. He's also not saying here that books are bad. He's just saying we don't need that many more books once we have a well-driven nail. We can live life and be content and be happy. I had a great dissertation advisor when I was going through my doctorate program. And he used to say, because I'd hand in stuff that was just bad, and he had to admonish me and correct my writing and fix it and get it right. He knew he was dealing with a guy who Grew up playing in a junkyard, so he was pretty patient with me. Um, But he used to say, you know, Sean, intelligent people can write really long dissertations with lots of big words, but brilliant people write short dissertations that actually speak to the reader, and they're understandable. So stop trying to be intelligent. Just be brilliant. Say something that people want to read and that's actually worth reading. And if what you have isn't worth reading then stay in the program for another two years. Keep researching until you find something that you actually want to tell people about. He's a really smart guy. Um, And I tried to take his advice because he had wisdom, the odd mix of intelligence and wisdom. Our job is not to figure out all the secret mysteries of the world. God's ways are not our ways. There is no hidden truth to the Bible. It is simple. I love that thought. I love that we can spend a lifetime searching things out and continue to find life in the Word of God, but we only need a few seconds to understand what it's all about. And then we don't really need more than that. We don't need more than that to go witness to people and share our faith and our love for Christ with more people. We think, well, I can't witness because I don't know the Bible as well as, you know, Pat Johnson over there. So I, can't, I don't have all of my verses memorized. You don't need the verses memorized. You just need to know that God loves you, that he died, he rose again that it actually has affected and changed your life. That's what you need to be able to talk about. It's not a debate. It's just a lifeline. It's not something we argue with people. It's something we share with people. It's just love, and it's just that easy. Hope, I have a hope that there's a plan for my life, and I know there's a plan for your life too. I don't know if God's going to you know, do what he's doing with me, but I know he's got a plan for you because the Bible says so. That hope is better than any intelligence I can bring to bear. That's the nail that gets driven through. But let's see how Solomon puts us. Verse 13, he says, Let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Here it is. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. That's it. Fear God, keep his commandments. What? The first word of the grand thing of the entire book of Ecclesiastes is the word fear? I'm supposed to be fearful? I'm supposed to be in horror or terrified or shakingly not able to even communicate in the face of the Almighty God? My command is that I'm supposed to be fearful and keep his commandments. Well, his commandments are back, and you know we'd have to do a whole study of Deuteronomy and Leviticus to get to the commandments. That's tough, but fear is a tough thing. Fear is something that in our society we've run away from this idea that fear has a positive side. There's negative fear right? Fear of humans. But there's positive fear. Fear of the hot stove and fear of sticking a metal object in an outlet. That's a healthy fear. Fear of the Almighty God is an amazing, it is the most healthy fear we can have. God is powerful. God created us. If we remember our Creator in the days of our youth and we remember that He made all of this, we should logically be extremely fearful of the Almighty God. There is a power and a majesty there well beyond us. yah is translated as fear 192 times directly. This includes afraids and dreads throughout the Bible. Fear is a concept in the Bible that is common, but it's rarely preached on. At least in American society, we don't spend or focus a lot of our time on fear. But if that's the summary of this entire book, we should think of it. I can be fearful of, I'm going to go back to that stove metaphor. I can be fearful of that stove, but the heat isn't bad, right? Heat isn't evil. Me putting my hand on it is really dumb. What's amazing in life when we make bad mistakes is we tend to blame God or we call that thing the evil thing. When at the end of the day, that's kind of vanity. We stuck our hand on that stove. We put ourselves in that mess. And that can be the kind of thing. Electricity isn't bad or good. It's powerful, right? We mess with things that are powerful in a way that we shouldn't. That power can hurt us and have damaging effects, lifetime effects. God has some rules too. Keep his commandments. There are rules to powerful things. There is a rule don't touch the stove. That's the rule. Don't listen to dad. There's a rule with electricity. It has laws, and there are physical laws to electricity. Why would it be any different that the God of the universe, loving his creations, would tell us the rules when it comes to dealing with them? Why is that a tough thing for us to grasp sometimes? I'm not saying it is for us, but I'm talking about our whole society. That's a rough thing. So when there's powerful things that have there, we're there. Throughout the Old Testament, it also says we're supposed to have courage. We're supposed to fear not. But when you see references to fearing not throughout the Bible, it's to not fear other people. Don't fear humans because if you're on God's side, there's no one that can stand against you. If God's on our side, who can be against us? If we fear God, we don't have to fear humans. If we serve and follow God's commandments, we don't have to worry about these other things that are there. If we do righteousness throughout our life, God will reward us for it. Not necessarily in this life in a physical way, but he can fill us with joy. That's more important than any things I listed at the beginning of this teaching. All those things Solomon gave, none of those things matter as much. Jesus would ask, was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he doesn't pull his answer from the Ten Commandments. Anybody, I'm sure you've noticed that before. He says, he cites Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, which is the Jewish Shema. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart and all thy soul and all their might. Fear God and love God are closely tied together in the Bible. You fear those things you appreciate and you honor and you respect. You can have a healthy fear of those things. Keep his commandments. John 14 says, If you love me, keep my commandments. This is Jesus. He who has my commandments and keep them is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself in him. John 15.10, if you keep my commandments, you abide in my love. If you love your parents when you're a kid, you obey your parents. They go together. And yet in this society, again, it's another thing that I think the enemy attacks is this idea of obedience and obeying our authorities. I don't want to obey all of God's commandments. I want to do it my way. Well, touch that stove, there's going to be consequences, right? Right? Go down that path. If you're so willful, you got to go that way. Go there, but do it hot or cold. Go all in. Find what the damages are so you can come back and be all in for Christ. James 1, uh, verse 27 says, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and keep oneself unspotted from the world. Stay away from vanity. This is man's all. It's his whole duty to love, to fear God and keep his commandments. That's it. We don't get any clearer in the Bible than that. Maybe Micah 6.8, right? But um, that's pretty clear. Verse 14, For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Whenever you see four, you should ask what it's there for, right? Solomon ends with a context for his statement. If we're supposed to fear God and keep his commandments, the context is because God's watching. There is a record being kept and we're going to be accountable for what we do. I think this is one of the number one things for when you have people that grow up as good people or people that grow up as willful people is if you're worried about what God's thinking about what you're doing. The only thing that keeps me in check, its you'd think it's Stephanie, um, but she's not always there with me. And I'm more fearful of what God will do to me than what my wife will do to me. And sorry, but Steph's a close number two. Um, I honor her and I fear her. and um, And I love her. Um, But I'm way more worried about what God would do. So a lot of times I'm not a decent human being because my wife wants me to be. I'm a decent human being because God wants me to be. And I'm worried about what he's thinking. There is no such thing as a secret thing, and I'll end on these two points. This idea that God's watching us, that every work we do is going to be brought into judgment. Again, I love getting into these topics that are really tough to get into sometimes, but God will judge us. The Bible says that throughout the Bible. We are going to be judged. Everything we do and every time we we act or don't act, God's going to judge us and he's going to hold us accountable for those things. Every moment we spend here on this earth, we're accountable for it. Thank goodness that God's forgiving and he loves us. Thank goodness, and Solomon didn't know this, but when you get to Jesus, Jesus said our sins are thrown as far as the east is from the west. We should be judged for everything we do, but under Jesus Christ, we're forgiven and those things get forgiven. But when you get into the Old Testament, when they didn't have that redemptive story and they didn't have Jesus' teachings, they were just going because they thought God was watching them. Should we be judged for everything we do? Yeah, that's just and right. We're accountable for our actions. Are we glad Jesus Christ is there to be our attorney and, and step in for us? Absolutely. So here's what it comes down to. If we don't have anything private, if our sins are, there's no such thing as a secret sin, we can't hide from God the only logical response to that is to repent. Change what we're doing. Love the Lord. Turn our course and wake up tomorrow morning and say, Lord, help me do the best I can do today. Help me to not be dumb enough to touch the stove again. Right? Help me to just think about others more than myself and not live for the things of this world, but live for you. Folks, that's the prayer of salvation in a nutshell. Right? God, I want to live for you. And I'm tired of my own stuff. And I got so, many, so much baggage, so many bad habits so much stuff in my life that I can't get rid of on my own, God, help me get rid of it and help me do it different. I just want to live for you. Help me to hold you up as my highest regard. Help me to keep Jesus at the middle of my focus in what I'm doing. When do you do this? According to Solomon, you do it now. Do it when you're young. Remember the Lord in your youth, and remember the Lord when you're in old age and you're an almond tree waiting to happen, right? And except for we die our almond trees now, right? You do it right now. Don't wait. If you're in this room, it's because God has a purpose. You're in this room for a reason. Make that decision and, and stick with it right now. And for those of you that are already walking that path, I think we do it every day. We get up tomorrow morning, we say the same prayer. Lord, help me do this. Help me walk through this journey. Show me the joy of your salvation in everything we do. Pray with me. Dear Lord and King, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the wisdom in Ecclesiastes. And the wisdom is so simple. The wisdom, Lord, is to fear you and keep your commandments. Lord, to do that, we have to reflect on you. We have to remember you as our creator, as our God, as the God of this universe. And Lord, we have to appeal to you as our savior and our shepherd and our friend and the person we spend time with. Lord, and to to experience your spirit and when your Holy Spirit is with us, Lord, we experience those moments where we are living for eternity and not living for the dust. Lord, help us to think of you. Help us to not live for vanity, but to live for you. Help us to be all in on that, Lord. Not to be lukewarm. Not to be half in, half out. But Lord, just to be all in for you. Lord, may we do it in such a way that we are dividing rods for the people we know. That they have to make a decision of if they're going to deal with this Jesus freak um, or if they don't. And Lord, we just want to have your Holy Spirit be the thing that brings us so much joy and life and love for other people, Lord. That Admit it. It shows people Jesus Christ. It shows them who you are. Lord, teach, teach me. Teach all of us to be more like you. Lord, you've written your commandments on our hearts. We have a conscience. We know what's right and wrong. Help us to not dance around it. Let's not justify those things that are wrong and vain. Let's just submit to the fact that we may do the right thing and be good and loving. Lord, help us to love others. Help us to love them more than ourselves. Us to love the Lord in such a way that you empower us to do that. It's not in our flesh. Lord, we thank you for Solomon. We thank you for him. Lord, the inspiration that you gave to him. And Lord, we just pray that we don't have to touch the skull, but we can learn from it. In Jesus' name.